if we're calm, relaxed, we're alert and, you know, interested and engaged and we have a friendliness and a kindness and an opening hearted, loving presence to the world, then, you know, all sorts of things are possible, including our liberation. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow Full Life Balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Today on Wisdom for Wellbeing, I'm joined by psychologist Nellie Martin. Nellie Martin integrates her psychology training with her Buddhist Dharma mindfulness study and practice, together with yoga teaching and practice and dance practice. Very well-rounded, and in her psychology work, she primarily uses evidence-based acceptance and commitment therapy or training and functional analytic psychotherapy. Linking all of this together is actually the topic of our conversation today. So specifically, Nellie shares her own journey and how she came to integrate the teachings from things like Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act with Buddhist practices and yoga. Ultimately, you'll hear that all of this is aimed at supporting healing. As Nellie puts it, I believe we humans have great potential for living a free and vital life. Our values and our pain are poured from the same vessel, Deep connection to our struggle and pain with authentic acceptance and compassion allows a transformation that opens us to this deep joy, happiness, gratitude, and vitality, guided by our values, what we care deeply about. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Nellie herself. I just wanted to take this first moment to welcome you to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast and to thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, thank you, Caitlin. Just to get things started, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? And specifically, I'm interested in hearing a little bit about how, you know, you work as a psychologist, but you also have this really rich background in training as a yoga instructor and, you know, a meditation practitioner. So would you mind sharing just a basic overview of of your history and you? Oh, well, you know, now that I'm old, it feels like that could take a million years, but anyway... (laughs) Um, yeah, so my history, I guess, is that I, I did psychology training straight out of school before I knew any better and um, found myself in child protection and juvenile justice as my first role in Western Queensland. And it was a little shocking to the system, to say the least. Um, but I felt like I had really good, you know, really good teachers and felt grounded in my, you know, practice. Um, but nevertheless, um, I, I, I took myself off to live in the UK where I did more child protection work, um, working with kids who'd been sexually abused and, you know, like, so it was quite in-depth work for, you know, a young person in their 20s, really. And um, I probably, you know, looking back, I could say I burnt out. I don't think I would have recognised that at the time, but I had what you might now call compassion fatigue. And, you know, had started my own yoga practice um, as a way to, um, you know, just be good in my own life. Um, and, you know, that was back in the 1990s and there wasn't as much yoga around, but I was in the UK. So it, it was more, 
you know, there was more opportunities there to practice. And, and I was getting more deeply into the practice. And, you know, one of my yoga teachers said, why don't you think about training? And so off I did, I went to train as a yoga teacher and took, you know, three years in those days rather than three weeks or three months. So, you know, that's not to decry what's happening now. I think it's really beautiful that there's many, um, you know, yoga trainings around. And, and it after, sounds like what you did was really in-depth and gave you a real opportunity to dive into the different layers of a yoga practice as well as probably integrate it in your own experience in life and what you were working with, you know, that significant um, trauma you were surrounded by every day, the compassion. Yeah, totally. Experiencing. Yes, totally. And, you know, I had many good teachers and the British Wheel, where I did my training, they were a beautiful umbrella organisation and certainly my diploma course tutor encouraged, you know, to seek out many other teachers. And so I felt quite um, given a lot of permission to, you know, explore what was out there in the yoga world, which, you know, was fascinating to me because during the teacher training, particularly the aspects of the mind, um, you know, it felt like so resonant with my psychology training that had happened years before, like, you know, 10 years mm. earlier. Um, That's really interesting. So there was some overlap between the aspects of the mind that you were learning about while you were doing your yoga teacher training and what you'd actually studied formally when you were doing your training as a psychologist. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, uh, but, you know, I, I decided to just teach yoga I decided it was all too hard work to you know to try and um and I guess you know in those days I had this sort of sense that my job as a psychologist was to fix people which um you know I, I don't think that's helpful for people I don't think that's helpful for practitioners I don't think that's helpful for the world because you know people get into psychological distress because you know stuff happens like around them and the way that you know we deal with it internally may lead us to a lot of distress but I, I personally, you know, and this is, I guess, an opinion that I have about, um, you know, uh, what is what is psychological distress, and that really is informed by, you know, the, the understandings that I have from a Buddhist background, but also from the functional contextualism um, approach that really is, you know, the third wave of psychology. So I'm I'm skipping ahead in my own history, but after being a yoga teacher for some time you know, I found myself really deeply drawn to meditation practice and the meditation practices that I encountered in the yoga tradition at that time anyway, and that's just because, you know, the internet didn't exist and, um, you know, it was hard to find people and what was going on. So, but I was more drawn to the Buddhist practice because, well, I found a depth of teacher there that I felt really resonant with, you know, people who had forayed into, um, you know, the mind uh, who had done enough practice to see, to be able to speak eloquently about the processes of the mind. And it just made total sense to me. So yeah, my, my meditation practice ended up much more down um, the Buddhist path and particularly the Western insight practice um, spoke to me and the teachers that I met at Guy House and, you know, and others connected to that with them. Um, you know, Jack Cornfield's lineage and Joseph Goldstein. So, you know, those teachers who had been, um, you know, in robes or around um, traditional practices in the 60s and 70s and then come back to the West to teach the rest of us. 
And that's an interesting point. So they come back to the West. So things are presented in a framework that was perhaps accessible as a Western individual. And I guess within that, there are a couple points I'd be really keen on um, diving into, if that's okay with you. Sure. So you mentioned that when you were starting to follow um, different meditation practices, you were starting to notice some overlap with um, functional contextualism. And I was just wondering if you would give a bit of an overview of what functional contextualism is for the listeners, as well as you mentioned third wave therapies, which someone who might not come from a psychology background might not be familiar with those terms. So maybe we could just start there. Yeah, sure. And, you know, it was probably a little bit the other way around because although in my early psychology training, I would have studied systems theories, i.e. that, you know, that we're not really looking at an individual, we're looking at a system because we can't really see that we can't see something operating apart from the environment in which it's in. So because behavior arises in a context essentially is what a functional contextualism is or and that and that behavior has a function within the context of the environment so an example um, might be like within um within a family that there might yes. be a certain behavior that someone engages in and the purpose of that might be to you know get um a little bit longer with mom and dad before bed so maybe that's why it's such slow going getting the book or brushing one's teeth or, or something like that that the purpose um the purpose of the behavior you know might not seem superficially obvious but if we look at it we can see behavior happens for a reason is that yeah exactly. you might have a more and elegant I, example than no, that, but no, off the top of my head yeah that's a really good example and it's a and, uh, and it's a good example because it shows that the behavior is you know it's relationally driven so you know that functional contextualism the relational frame theory is the sort of basic science that sits inside of that um um, the contextual behavioral world and uh, you know from which act acceptance and commitment therapy and fap or functional analytic psychotherapy have grown up as um, therapies but the um, relational frame theory is the sort of basic science underneath that that gives um, you, you know the the applied work if you like the um, the therapeutic work um, like a basis from which to go, which, you know, when we look around at the sort of therapies, even the good evidence-based therapies um, don't necessarily have that theoretical framework underpinning. They have, um, I guess, they have theories underneath it rather than things that have been shown through the basic sciences. Okay, so... um... ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, you mentioned, and um, FAB, so that's Functional Analytic psychotherapy yeah so these two therapies are evidence-based and they sit within a real rich understanding of how we interact in relationships and in the world that there's context for our behavior and that these are something called third wave therapies which means that um, cognitive behavior therapy which is something people might be more familiar with a type of therapy that a lot of practitioners use and for which there's a very strong evidence based was something that developed a number of years ago and more recently these third wave therapies have developed and they've integrated wisdom from Eastern traditions, if I'm, if I'm doing history justice here. Hmm. And you might be able to shed light on this and, and kind of refine what third wave means for the listeners and, and what the richness is that these, these therapeutic approaches bring in these like philosophical frameworks, really. 
Yeah, and I guess that I, I guess third wave could like in a general loose, you know, shorthand, shorthand way, you could say utilize a mindfulness approach, which yeah. means you know the capacity to notice, um, you know, what is occurring and to have, uh, um, I guess, develop a witness the capacity for witnessing one's own internal world from a stance that's more neutral and even to some extent compassionate. So in, in ACT, that's the, the acceptance piece, you know, that like trying to change something that's going on internally from like a stance, like a sort of um, oppositional stance is actually going to probably further entrench it. That's an argumentative basis. Um, it, it isn't the basis from which you might change something. And certainly, you know, like DBT, dialectic behaviour therapy, would have the same sort of, you know, there's an acceptance piece in there that, is I guess the wisdom that's come down from the Eastern traditions. Well, that's what I would see. And, you know, was, I guess, pivotal for me to learn was like that if you try to change something without um, accepting it, embracing it, loving it, then, then in all likelihood, you actually just create further suffering. So from, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, that would be, um, you know, the suffering is the, the tanha or the grasping, the clinging, the craving, but also equally the, the, uh, the avoidance or the pushing away or the, so it has, uh, you know, both of those aspects when you're like reaching or grasping on wanting something or when you're sort of trying to push away something that you don't want. And so that the, the hmm, I guess the practice and the learning is to open up the space that's neither of those things. And that would be the space of, you know, what we might consider mindfulness, like the ability to um, notice something occurring and, and often needs a place of compassion to do that. Because if what we're, what's occurring is unpleasant or what we don't want, then, you know, those, those, um, and it wouldn't even say their their urges almost the the sense of like we have to push away what we don't want we have to grasp after you know what we do want um, so the there's these urges to push things away that we don't want and to grasp things that we do want, which often results in the experience of more suffering or a, a dis-ease in one's experience because energetically they're trying to, you know, we all at different points in times try and make things different yeah. than they are. But this practice of mindfulness is perhaps a step and a skill in learning to be with what is and to practice acceptance as you described in both the context mm. of, you know, psychological therapies that are based on this framework as well as Buddhism and different um, insight traditions is that um yeah that's a pretty good summary yes yeah beautiful so when you went down this avenue of exploring buddhism as well and starting to see links in this practice and um what we called the third wave therapies would you be able to explain a little bit about the overlap there because i think that's a really interesting area that whether we go down a framework of you know western sort of psychology psychology, psychotherapy, or Eastern insight, that there's a lot of shared experiences and a rich insight that you, that you bring when you integrate the two. Yeah, sure. And, you know, like, I, I guess I've learned, um, you, you know, my psychology training, which I probably reinvigorated sort of 12 years ago after deciding that 
psychology was a waste of time. You know, like I did come back into the fold, so to speak. And, and you know, I've learned from some very brilliant teachers and, and it's hard for me to say how, because those teachers have obviously been influenced by, you know, at least a sort of consciousness raising process of the 60s, if not, you know, directly with, you know, John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness coming in in a more sort of mainstream way. So, um, you know, to have them as completely separate, you know, it's probably never happened really or hasn't happened for a really long time. But so that it is an integration and, and, and people have been, cross-reading and, um, you know, there, there are a lot of, you know, folks like me who are sort of straddling the world of psychology and, you know, um, I guess Buddhist practice or, you know, although I'd hesitate to call myself a Buddhist mainly because of, you know, my teachers who might suggest that, um, you know, that it's not necessarily about beliefs but it's about practice. Mm. Um, I suppose there's I a I've philosophy gone, uh, there, isn't there? A, a philosophical yes. framework that might guide one's view in the world and one's interactions or practices, and it it can be simply that maybe. Yes, possibly, and and I guess you know I, when you look at the like particularly the the stories from the Buddhist um, background, then you know he fairly famously doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer any like ontological questions, he, like, the, you know, the existence like of the universe or like that. So he, he, he basically points to that they're the wrong questions if you want to end suffering. So, you know, that, that it's, not, it's actually just not an ontological question in, ter- in terms of worldview, but like you can, it does decide how you might like approach or look at your life as it's unfolding in front of you. So if, if you approach your life as like a problem to solve, like a maths problem, or if you approach your life as something to behold, which one of my favourite psychology teachers, Kelly Wilson, would say, you know, you have to see that. Is, is life a maths problem to solve or a sunset to behold? And, you know, as psychologists, we need to ask the same questions about you know, our clients in front of us, you know, are they a maths problem to solve or a sunset to behold? Because being somebody's maths problem, whether it's your mother's or your psychologist's maths problem, is not, you know, it's not the best feeling in the world. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, this is, I think, what when we look at how we look in through the medical model and diagnoses um, that we may be potentially creating more suffering than there needs to be. I mean, so, and, but it's, it's, you know, I understand we have, you know, we have medical shorthand. We need to be able to communicate with people around, you know, clusters of symptoms or what's going on for people to help us understand. Um, but, but, but there can the be a way that... that person seeking, seeking help and seeking guidance, that some of the advice you might give them when you're working with them is even just holding that space of allowing them the experience of being a sunset to behold. And perhaps by embodying that and being so present with someone in their experience and not approaching an individual as a problem to solve, you know, a maths equation, that you're teaching someone ways that they might interact with with themselves in a way, you know, our own lives, Mm. living our lives as, you know, a beautiful sunset rather than something we need to solve. And I guess in that, that's something where, you know, a lot of individuals might get stuck. So 
what would be the framework you might offer for an individual to help them move towards that experience of living their life as a sunset, living their life as something that they can behold, something that they can experience rather than that struggle of problem solving? Yeah. I mean, there's some really beautiful teachings from, uh, you know, both, I would say, ACT and BAP and, and also um, like Buddhist practice that I, and part of it is to, you know, the, the first and most important thing is to develop the skill to notice stuff and, you know, to notice like when that suffering might be present, you know, and so that's really a lot of, practice around embodiment you know because we are inevitably going to be holding a sense of you know tension or tightness or you know something's going to be going on in the body when we're in the place of suffering so you know to use the body as a bit of a barometer is like a sort of key practice and but also to you know because it also gives a platform to notice the mind so what happens with our minds is you know and I and I before I guess I learned to meditate, I, I, it wasn't that I wasn't aware of my mind, but I wasn't aware of my mind from anywhere but inside of my mind. That's an interesting <laughs> so, way of putting it. Yeah. So, you know, I guess developing the capacity to, you know, bear witness to one, you know, the generation of thoughts, the generation of um, feelings, emotions, moods, mind states, you know, that it, might, it seems like a sort of a simple thing, but it's it's like a profound shift in terms of the capacity to notice and you know to recognize that when we're essentially in some sort of funk or you know you would say in buddhism some sort of space of dukkha or suffering or you know suffering may even be a too strong word or just a sense of unsatisfactoriness with life and that you know that becomes with a felt sense but it often also comes with a mood or a mind state or thoughts about you know, er, like, why is it like this? And why I shouldn't be doing that. And so, you know, there'll be a whole pattern of thought. So once you begin to notice and recognize that, you know, then you can get curious and ask some inquiry questions. And, you know, this would be something that um, I would regularly recommend that came from, I think, I think Jack Cornfield might've been the first one to do it, but Tara Brach and many others have sort of used this and, in act we would use something quite similar but to just begin to recognize and once something is recognized then you know then we can go into that slot of like oh, pause and notice and um and then sort of ask the questions the inquiry questions might be something around you know am i willing to accept this like or am i in a fight with it so like you ask that question you know not from a place of like well i should be accepting it because if we're not, then that's the thing that we may need to notice. We can always step our awareness back one more step to go, oh, okay, well, this is the thing that's occurring. So the framework would be, you know, notice, recognize, accept, and then to do an inquiry into the body about what the thing is that feels like it's suffering. So, you know, inquiries into the body use like a sort of elemental focus. So through the earth, water, fire, air, and space. So that you know, that would be to come into the body more uh, like in a refined way to see what its shape, colour, texture, you know, movement, heat, 
wetness, dryness, all of those sort of aspects to the internal felt sense might be. And then if there's still a sense of like suffering, I guess, then you could um, do the inquiry question. Tara Brock might say something like the, does it need some nurturance? Um, Jack Cornfield might say something like, you know, am I still really heavily identified with this? So that's the, um, the process of nurturing or non-identification because often it comes down to this sort of sense of self where we feel like something should be different going on internally. Um, I think that that's a really interesting point to um, unpack. Sorry, just my microphone went for a second. So I guess, Nellie, just to start from the top, because there was layers that happened there. So the first thing Mm. that would be really useful for people is to be able to just notice what's happening for them and be able to notice what's happening as a first step in one's body. So noticing sensation as it may be arising or tension, you know, whatever is showing up in the physical body and that, you know, both perhaps a yoga practice and a meditation a mindfulness practice would be useful in developing, cultivating the skill to be aware and Mm. from this recognition of what is showing up what is present then you have this opportunity to move into the practice of acceptance so being able to Mm. accept the experience as it's arising in your body in your life in that moment and then following this acceptance was the next step if there was a need for you know nurturance or a further further practice to support yourself and whatever may be present in that moment is that is that correct have I got that yeah yeah that that's sort of like a process um yeah Jack and Tara would use the acronym of RAIN so the first one being recognition um, the second one being acceptance, the third one being the investigation, and then the end being the nurturance, or at the Jack would use a non-identification. Okay, beautiful. So, so there's actually and always acronym. inquiries. Yeah, so they're always inquiries, I guess. You know, that. so rather than any should, must, or to, and have to, because, you know, that would be not acceptance. <laughs> and so even though acceptance is there, you still have to approach it as an inquiry or, you know, like, could I accept this? And am I willing to, in this moment, make space for this mood, thought, feeling, body sensation? Yeah. Okay. So thank you so much for giving us the RAIN acronym. I think that's a really useful um, mnemonic, a way of people uh, remembering these these skills in a time where things mm. might be feeling a little bit hectic. And I can put a link to that actually in the show notes so people might be able to look in and mm. actually take that, take that RAIN uh, messaging away with them. So in regards to that skill set then, Nelly, you mentioned that this might be a similar process to some of the therapeutic approaches that you would work with an individual in, you know, in the therapeutic context. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess in therapy, though, there's sort of two of you in this space. So, you know, that in some ways I get the privilege of helping somebody do some of that tracking. So it's not just a, a meditative, you know, internal process. I'm getting folks to let me know out loud what goes on for them. Okay, so you could point out if they were um, 
perhaps not as connected to the sensations that might be arising in the body. You're noticing the emotions as they might be experienced and, and help guide their awareness. Um, yeah. So I mostly do that with an inquiry though, like, yeah. a, you know, like, you know, do, what's happening now <laughs> it's like yeah. in some ways it's this sort of standard therapeutic um uh, you know like what are you noticing what's happening for you and 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 i might you know say some things that i notice about you know what, how, body language or you know how they appear to me and i might guess at some things sometimes or like that but I'm that's really not because I'm interested in guessing it's more like I'm trying to help guide their behavior or guide their like awareness and if um you know if I'm wrong I'm wrong I'm not not really wed to the to that you know to my interpretation of what's happening for them I'm more just trying to help them make that make sense of you know what's happening particularly based on if there's been a you know like a running away or an avoidance of like an internal felt sense and you know often when people are using substances or other behavior that might be like addictive then it is often that like avoidance of what's going on internally okay and certainly that's a lot of the work that act might look at in experiential avoidance as being one of the sources of you know suffering or the so, sources of the psychological distress they would say more yeah so avoiding one's experience can result in distress and interestingly enough when we are having an uncomfortable experience often there is a drive to avoid not to deal with it to manage it in some way so it sounds like on your journey you know you mentioned that you were working as a psychologist in a really difficult area suffering what you might now you know, label as compassion fatigue, that you were every day encountering trauma and that you actually started a yoga practice as a way of coping with that. And I wonder mm. how this practice of yoga might in some ways be different than other, you know, avoidance-based or just other mechanisms people might use to cope with really difficult situations, be it, you know, someone else who may have a similar experience in a stressful workplace or difficult family relationships or just different uncomfortable internal experiences, thoughts, feelings coming up. How could yoga perhaps or how could other, other tools help them, support them? Well, I mean, you know, on, on some level you could say if you use yoga as an avoidance strategy, then, you know, you'll turn it into that same suffering wheel that you might if you use, you know, binge eating or alcohol or drugs or whatever, overworking, too much sex, whatever. Um, so it certainly has the capacity to be, like, misused, if you like. But I guess, and, you know, I certainly seen it like that or you know may have even used it like that myself sometimes so it's like um but i it, in its in its essence like it's basically just not that bad for you it's not like it's not so bad as like taking drugs for you know just for the body like because it comes from an underpinning sense of respect for the human body that the practice um you know, the practices in and of themselves are designed to take care of the body. That doesn't mean that everybody practices, the practices yoga is taking care of their bodies and you can certainly, you know, overextend yourself in your yoga practice and hurt yourself and um, 
by by not taking care. But you know, usually there's enough wisdom around in yoga to help you know to point those things out to to you know because it's inherent in the practice to notice like when are you striving when are you end gaining when are you pushing although you know i hear although i don't really experience it firsthand but i hear that you know sometimes yoga has moved into that like you know pushing type of um you know activity pushing people into postures um pushing people beyond their limits pushing people into like too hot a space or something like that but you know inherently there's a there's a respect um for the human body so it wouldn't have that type of effect it's an interesting point to being mindful of the practices we're engaging in so if someone let's say turned to yoga as a way of managing some distress they were experiencing like you did as a young person it could be the case that perhaps this would be an avoidance strategy but It may also be the case that in this practice, you know, if it's in an environment that is sharing this wisdom about tuning in and checking in and responding accordingly to the body's needs in a moment, I wonder if that would counter some of the avoidance or transform the avoidance into this experience of interception, which is just to say, noticing what's happening in one's physical body, and then perhaps Mm. being able to use that information to you know, interact differently off the mat to take that wisdom into one's life. So something that might have been an avoidance strategy could possibly with that increased skill set be a tool towards acceptance or noticing. Totally, totally. You know, and skilled teachers will be doing that, you know, subtly all the time. And that, you know, most people who come to yoga, you know, myself included for the first time would have been either, you know, wanting something like grasping after, you know, the the good feelings that you get from yoga or trying to avoid, you know, something, you know, bad feelings or bad body sensations. And, you know, mine was probably the latter where I was like, you know, my body in pain or I'm just feeling not so great. But, you know, I equally know yoga teachers and people who in the yoga world who got into yoga because it gave them such good sensations because they you know achieved the jhanic states fairly easily and then they got into the sort of grasping which you know ultimately didn't lead them down a path but because of the wisdom that's inside of yoga you know we you know there is a pointing out of those things at some point in time probably early on but it's just that most of us don't hear that early on like you know I heard all sorts of things about yoga being non-competitive in my early days but I didn't necessarily all that did initially for me anyway was drive that competition internal so I just didn't speak about it but then you know at a certain point in time it's like the penny drops and I go and it's like oh that means not competing with myself or not even competing with myself as I was yesterday or what I think I will be tomorrow you know let alone the person beside me on the mat it's and and not speaking about it it's it's actually dropping the stance of competition and if I'm not being competitive with myself or anybody else in time or space, then what am I doing? So then, you know, like by definition, it will open up an inquiry practice, but it that may not be, or it may, maybe, you know, well, it was true for me. I wasn't able to hear that message early on. <laughs> 
And that's interesting how it relates back to what you described around, you know, beholding a sunset versus solving a maths problem, you know, in the solving a maths problem method of approaching our life in the world. I wonder if that's, you know, must do X posture for, you know, Y result or must do the posture better than, you know, Joe beside me and Jane ahead of me or better than I did yesterday versus noticing what the experience is like in this moment, you know, that sunset analogy, noticing what is arising for you in the practice and responding accordingly in that moment, rather than being focused somewhere else or on achieving or pushing something away. Yeah, totally. You know, yes. And yes, I think that, that, that wisdom is totally available in a practice and we have to be, we have to be available to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. And so now I know that you do some yoga practices for anxiety and depression. So fusing these two areas where you have expertise and knowledge. And I wonder if we might be able to start to finish our conversation, perhaps just sharing a little bit about what's different about how you integrate your wisdom in that, in that forum. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I think yoga, I think of those things. So there's the mindfulness approach, which is, you know, the acceptance and the opening up and allowing of all, you know, all things that are occurring in phenomena to be there. And, um, you know, and there's, we can affect change and, and it is actually beneficial to cultivate um, the, the beneficial mind states, if you like. So if we're calm, relaxed, we're alert and, you know, interested and engaged and we have a friendliness and a kindness and an opening hearted, loving presence to the world, then, you know, all sorts of things are possible, including our liberation. So it is still useful to, you know, cultivate the mind states that can help us on our path and, you know, and to find ways to um, shift the ones that aren't beneficial and don't cultivate. But of course, you know, what we just spoke about earlier was that if we just try to push them away, we often can't do that. So however you approach a practice where you might be um, shifting something that, you know, you want to like take some time. And that's why I think often in a yoga practice and a meditation practice will have a, you know, an entry process, if you like, where there's an ability to um, look at um, the intention and the motivation and, you know, to, you know, give a bit of space and clarity to to the to the approach i guess so we get an opportunity to look at am i just like you know am i rolling out my yoga mat to go oh i've got to get rid of this pain in my shoulder which you know i've had a shoulder injury like so i need to be mindful of my like you know where's my results where's my like deliver this deliver the goods for me yoga practice so so that's why like slow entry. So like a sort of an opening practice and a, you know, a setting of an intention, a prayer an offering um, where, where that, where that, um, you know, that push or that pull gets to be seen. And so that at least there's an acknowledgement of that. And, you know, maybe the intention is to allow that to, um, you know, to drop away or, to open up a space or so, so that I think the intention setting um, like is really important. Okay. And then, and then, you know, and then there basically is technology inside of yoga to shift moods and mind states and, and it's not really rocket science, you know, in some level, a lot of the work is with the breath and, 
if you want to um, calm the nervous system, you know, you encourage the breath out. And there's lots of practices that help, you know, to let go of the breath, to encourage the breath out so that this, you know, the nervous system gets to drop. And, you know, there's ways that we can, um, you know, work with the body to do nervous system. I guess I think of them as nervous system resets, like, you know, to shake and to use sound and, um, you know, use the movement, use like precise movements to help, you know, uh, the vagus nerve to, to, to soften, to like let go. And, you know, we have to know that all of those practices are only like we can set them up um, and get curious and interested about the results. Like we become our own internal lab and we want to not, like we can't in fact force the results because if we try to force the results, that's usually when the results don't happen. But, you know, we do the practice and open up the inquiry space. It was like, oh, well, let's see what happened from that. So, you know, it's like slow in and it's also slow out, which means sort of like you want to leave a space to notice the effects of the practice and open up that as an inquiry space. So, okay, so what, what happened when we did that? And let's be as curious and open as we can to the noticing aspect not like damn it that didn't work or or yes i feel better and so you know and obviously when you're working with depression then um the same sort of thing there's you know the way to encourage the breath in and move the body so that it opens up more um so that it is like inspired so there's inspiration from the breath and then um you know the more oxygen we have circulating through the system the more bright we feel and you know again the movements of the body and the movements of the eyes and you know certain things um in the body will brighten the mood and will lift the energy and and again slow in look at our intention if we're like god i just have to feel better you know if we're going into the practice like that we're less likely to have the results of like okay let's just see what the technology does and um, make the space at the end to, you know, do the observations and, and inquire, I guess. Yeah. So it's really beautiful. It's this opportunity to set an intention for a practice to have space at the beginning and to connect with where, where your heart might be guiding you in showing up on the mat for this yoga practice and then having space at the end to reflect on what unfolded, what that experience was like and having the practice itself be very guided by science and understanding of how different um, distress affects the body. So you mentioned the vagus nerve, which is this giant nerve in our body that is connected to our parasympathetic nervous system, which is so clearly associated with um, different distressing experiences, as well as different conditions in the body, mm. like inflammatory conditions, which of course then have this overlap with, you know, anxiety and depression themselves. So the fact that the yoga practice can be designed to work on the vagus nerve, you mentioned different types of breath control using breath as a mechanism and experience in the practice and different experiences with the eyes as well. So it sounds to me like when you're offering this, this gift, this practice, it's really guided by the wisdom of a therapeutic practice in the noticing, observing, reflecting the wisdom of the yoga movement and also the science that underpins both of them in regards to what is actually happening in our system physiologically when we're 
anxious, when we're depressed, and how can we positively utilize these skills for one's mood benefit and one's relaxing benefit, I suppose. Is that an okay overview? Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. So then in regards to where people might go from here, what would you say would be really useful steps in someone's healing journey going forward? If they were going to take a couple of points from today, would there be any recommendations that you would have to follow up or just to, just to start going down this, this beautiful path that you've, that you've been treading? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so in love with like yoga and meditation and and dance and, you know, I, I feel like the body is where it's at these days. Um, you know, I know that in the last sort of four or five years, I've heard the word embodiment used so so much and so regularly. And, um, you, you know, I feel like, you know, mindfulness of body, you know, and yoga practices all bring us like home to the body. And the more time we have, you know, with ourselves in front of a, a flat screen like you and I are right now, um, the, the more that we sort of need that because, you know, we already had a, well, I had a really, before there was, a, you know, the age of the screen, I had a strong propensity to be in my head anyway, like thinking about everything. Um, and, you know, the relationship with my body was, you know, before yoga, really just one of, um, you know, see what it can do for me and, you know, can it play sport good enough to win the competition or does it look okay or whatever. But this, um, the sense of just coming home to the body, like the, you know, we've called it interception in psychology, like coming home to the felt sense of the body. Um, I, I feel like we need it now more than ever, like because of the so we have so much screen time and um, the the preference that, that you know is in the world everything is like the age of technology and and thinking and we get so much more reward for that so you know my my sense is like come home to the body really and come home to like ourselves and each other and whatever works for you like you know yoga meditation dance those three things really work for me to come home to the body but if you come home to the body you know, I live at the beach at Noosa, which is very lucky. And so, you know, I know a number of my friends would say it's surfing for them. Yeah. And you know, I love getting in the water too, but, you know, I've stood up for four seconds. But so I'm not there with surfing yet. You've got um, your so, other practices to find your your connection to yourself. Yeah. And then it's unique, yeah, it's individual. Yeah, exactly. So people can maybe start exploring. And if they haven't found an area where they enter this zone, where they feel connected to themselves, that yoga and meditation might be a really beautiful avenue to pursue, to start, to give a go to because that might offer them the opportunity to notice what is going on in their body, to check in with their self and to experience, you know, life, life as a sunset unfolding. Mm, Totally. And, you know, and our bodies are the, like our minds must be too, but it's like through the felt sense of the body, we can connect with the natural world. And, you know, and for me, that's, that's also really a key part of, you know, healing and presencing, like when we're noticing the, the energetics of not only like what's inside our own skin bag, but what's outside of our skin bag, like what, you know, and that, that do we feel that like interconnectedness and the indivisibility between, you know, us all 
and you know the the world around us so uh, my my sense is that the pathway is through the body that's really beautiful and that's a really beautiful note to finish off on to this interconnectedness and i think that you know relates to a real driving force. We talked about relationship earlier and how important that is. And the fact that we are in relationship and perhaps in one way or another, we are all in relationship in this together, that there is this interconnectedness that we can experience in different practices and different moments in our lives. And that that can be really nourishing. Mm. So, Nelly, I know that you do some amazing work and, you know, you do actually offer those three, um, those three elements, you know, yoga, meditation and dance in different forums, doing workshops and retreats, as well as offering one-on-one therapy at your practice in Noosa. So I will, we're recording this episode a little bit early. So as we discussed, I will finish off with some updated notes on where individuals might be able to access upcoming retreats and workshops. But in regards to where they can find you online, they can go to mindfulness-practice.com or nellymartin.com. And I'll also have those links in the show notes so people can check in and get in contact with you and connect in with the offerings that you are, that you are so generously and beautifully serving up. So thank you very much, Nellie. Oh, oh, thank you, Caitlin. It's been such a pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure as well. And I'm looking forward to talking with you soon. that you found this interview with Nellie as interesting as I did. She's clearly a brilliant mind and her capacity to link together acceptance and commitment therapy, functional analytic psychotherapy, Buddhist practices, yoga and dance was really eye-opening to me. Now you can find more about Nellie's work generally on her website Nellie, N-E-L-I, Martin.com Or if you're interested in her private practice based in Noosa, Queensland, Australia, check out mindfulness-practice.com. Of course, all of this, including the acronym for RAIN and the other things we mentioned in the episode today, can be found in the show notes at drcaitlin.com along with a full episode transcript. Thank you very much and we'll see you back here next Wellbeing Wednesday. All right. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.